just going to give you a little preview of where we're going. Bill, for a minute, you're going to be like, how does this dot connect with where we're starting? Okay. So about a week ago, I was at home and I was reflecting on things that make me mad, <laughs> things that are messed up in the world. And I was like, you know, sometimes in that place, it feels like you're the only one that's angry. Like, why am I the only one that's galvanized about this? Why am I the only one that, that like, wants to be outraged and, like, do something? And, like, shouldn't somebody else, shouldn't that person be upset, too? Shouldn't that person, you know? And, like, the phrase that was in my mind was just get galvanized. I don't know if you know what that word means, but it just means, like, to spur on to action, to, like, in a passionate way. And it just kept on repeat, get galvanized, get galvanized. I was like, okay. Well, with all that fire in me, guess what I did? I took a nap. <laughs> but I woke up with a phone call from Steve, and he was like, hey, Bree, um, we had an opening in the preaching schedule. Would you be willing to preach in about a week? And I just kind of thought, Lord, are you maybe going ahead of this sermon, like with this word, get galvanized? So you might wonder, we're playing one of those crazy dot-to-dots today where it's like there's 2,000 dots. Have you guys ever seen that extreme dot-to-dot? -dot? It's kind of what we're going to do, okay? So buckle up. I, I promise it should make sense. <laughs> Holy Spirit, help me. Okay, so where we're at in our first Samuel sermon, or our series, is that well, where we have been is we've looked at the people of God, the Israelites. They have been brought um, by God out of Egypt into the promised land, and there they settled with the law of God. And for a while, they would follow the law of God. Then they would fall into idolatry and rebellion. Then they would get judged by God and find themselves um, in the hands of an enemy or something like that. Then their cry for help would reach the Lord. He would deliver them. He would give them a judge to help them, and they would enter into a repentance cycle and follow the Lord once more. Then fall back into idolatry and do this over and over and over again. That was the book of Judges that preceded 1 Samuel. And then 1 Samuel comes, and the man named Samuel was born. He's a prophet of God, and he also served as a judge. And he is now old. That's where we're at in this story. Samuel's old, and we learned last week that his sons are corrupt. And the people came to Samuel, and they said, Hey, you're old. We don't, your sons aren't good guys. We want a king. And the Lord said, do what they say. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king in this request to have a king. Um, as I was reading in 1 Samuel, I found just different connections in different places that tell the story that we're going to talk about today. And one of the connections was in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 12. There should be a slide for this. It's the second one. But um, it says, but when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. So what was happening was more than one thing. You know, like, like usual, when we make decisions, there's more than one thing influencing that decision. And so the people had said, we want a king. It's partly because there's this guy who's nasty, and he's come, and he's raised up his army, and he's starting to threaten them. And so they're going, well, Samuel's old. We need help. Give us a king. Okay? Even though God had delivered them and shown himself faithful in so many miraculous ways in the past, this was their go-to move because they're operating out of fear. Okay? So that's one thing. 
And another thing that they had also said was, we want a king to go before us in battle. We want to be like the other nations. So there's two things that they definitely verbalized. And one is, we're afraid. And the other is, we want to look like the other nations. We want to look like the world. And in this place, you can see like a collective identity crisis happening for the people of God. Because when we're operating out of fear, our eyes are nowhere near the Lord and the knowledge of who he is to us, right? So they're, they're just losing this aspect of who they were as people of God, as his children, and as his rep representatives. And they're doing the same thing when they say, well, we want a leader that everybody can see. We want to look like the other nations. In rejecting God, they're losing the sense of who they are as his people and trying to look like other nations. But God says, let's go with it. I'll give them a king. And so he tells Samuel um, who this guy is going to be. And we meet Saul, the first king of Israel, um, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. And here's a couple things it says about him. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphiah of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Okay. Well, Saul's dad had some donkeys, and they got lost, and so Saul's dad sent him out to go find the donkeys, and so this is how Saul meets Samuel. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will send you on your way and will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? Saul answered, but I... Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such things to me? So this is their introduction. Saul start, Samuel's starting to hint to Saul that God has big plans for him. And Saul's really confused by this because he really just went out to look for donkeys. And now Samuel's saying, hey, the whole country desires after you. And Saul's probably confused. <laughs> But he eats dinner with him. The next morning, they get up, and Saul's going to go home. And in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? And then God did some other things um, to provide a way for Saul to be a good leader. As Saul went on his journey, it says this, When he turned his back to leave Samuel... God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. Okay, we're almost done. We're going to get one last glimpse into Saul before we start digging even deeper. Okay, First uh, Samuel chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. The people have now gathered for the coronation of Saul. The word has gone out. We found the king. We're going to coronate him. Okay. And so when they looked for him, 
among the people. He was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. Okay. There is so much that we could say about all of this, but let's just start by we're learning a few things about Saul, right? Um, the obvious is this statement. There is no one like him among the people. But what Samuel's really saying is, look how handsome and tall he is. Nobody else is this tall. Nobody else is this handsome. Nobody else measures up this way. But what we're about to find out is that God has actually chosen a king for the people that is a lot like the people. <laughs> because you've gotten these glimpses along the way that something's up with Saul, that, that maybe the whole of Israel is having a collective identity crisis, but it looks like maybe Saul is too. Because when he first met Samuel, he said to Samuel, why are you talking to me about the nation desiring after me? I'm from the smallest tribe. Benjamin is the smallest tribe of Israel. Why are you talking to me like this? And then later when Samuel has a conversation with Saul, after Saul makes a mistake, Samuel says this to him in 1 Samuel 15, 17. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. So you can see that, one, he's very aware that he's from the smallest tribe of the people, but also he sees himself as small, which is interesting because he's clearly not. So this guy has some major identity issues, right? We don't know exactly where they might, probably there's many contributing factors, okay? But here God is revealing what is in the heart of the people by the king that he chose, who also has some identity problems. And when I started looking, like, why, why is Saul like this? Like, why does he see himself as small? Why does he not want to lead the people? Why is he hiding in the baggage at his coronation? Right? What is this all about? So I started looking, and this is really interesting. Um, in, in Judges, it tells a little bit of the backstory about why Saul's tribe is so small, okay? I'm going to story tell this. It's a long story, and by the way, it's one of those stories that when you're reading in the Old Testament, you scratch your head a little bit and you go, what? This is crazy. And you just think, why is this in the Bible, and why did it happen like this, okay? There's a lot culturally that's different, like that separates us from the Old Testament, um, there's things that aren't necessarily written into the word, you know, that would maybe flesh things out to give us better understanding of really like, God, is this what you wanted to happen or is it not? Okay. But this is what happened in Judges chapter 19. There's a guy from the clan of Levi. He's traveling with his wife and he ends up going, he's trying to get to Ephraim. And he ends up going on his journey and staying in the town of Gibeah, which is Saul's hometown. Present day, 1 Samuel. But Saul hasn't been born yet. Um, if you could pull up the map, people will be able to see kind of what I'm talking about. Okay, so, oh man, it's so tiny, you guys. 
Okay, <laughs> at the bottom there's an orange line. That's where Gibeah is. So this is where this Levite man and his wife end up staying for the night, but they don't know anybody. So they're in the town square, and guess what? A man comes out, an old man. He's like, don't stay in the town square for the night. Come into my house. I'll feed you. I'll do all these things for you. We'll have a nice evening. So they go into his house. They're doing the normal things, eating together, and then knock, knock, knock on the door. Uh, it's the men of the town, the wicked men of the town. And they're having this moment where they're saying, hey, we know there's a new guy in town staying with you. Send him out so that we can have intimate relations with him. And the old man is like, no, no, that's outrageous. We're not going to do that. But the people are so persistent that what they end up doing is sending the wife of this man out to these people and they abuse her. And in the end, they open the door in the morning and she's lying on the doorstep dead. Crazy. I know, I'm sorry. It's really awful. But it kind of paints this story for you. So hang with me, okay? It gets a little weirder. So the man takes his wife. He goes back to his town. And I'm sure he's in shock, but he probably feels like a powerless person, right? And so he does something outrageous to um, stir up the people. And so he cuts his wife up and sends her out to the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? And the people are obviously shocked. He tells the story. This is what happened to my wife when we went to this town of Gibeah in Benjamin. Can you believe what happened? This was awful. This should never be in our country among the people of God, right? And the people are outraged. And so they all gather. 600,000 Israelites gather and they say to the tribe of Benjamin, hey, you better give us those guys. They need to be put to destruction because they do not represent the people of God. And um, a battle ensues because Benjamin's like, no, we're not giving them up. So 26,000 from Benjamin fight the 600,000 from Israel and they get wiped off the map. So there's 600 men left from the tribe of Benjamin when this is all said and done. And the rest of Israel, over time, I believe, begins to mourn that one of the tribes of God's people is going to go extinct because they had put all the cities to destruction as well, not just the men they fought in battle. So this tribe's going to get wiped off the map. And um, they said, that can't do. And what they, they said, where are we going to get wives for these guys? Because we all made a promise that we weren't going to give them our daughters. And so they came up with a new plan. And they said, hey, guess what? There's this town up north, the second orange line near the top. Jabesh Gilead, that town, nobody from that town came out to help fight against Benjamin. So they went out, they put that town to destruction and saved 400 of the unmarried women to marry the Benjamin, the men of Benjamin, okay? So this is Saul's family of origin story. And he is living in this town of Gibeah where this terrible stuff happened so many years later. And you know, when he says to Samuel, hey, who am I that the nation would desire me? I'm nobody and I'm also from this tiny tribe of Benjamin, that this story has to be on his mind. In fact, in the future, future prophets continue to write about this having happened and how awful it was in Gibeah, okay? So this was terrible. 
And this is where Saul's coming from. And you start to think, okay, I get why the guy has some identity issues, why he might think, hey, I can't lead God's people. But God is very interesting in the ways that he chooses to start to redeem things, you know? Um, throughout 1 Samuel, it talks about Saul being God's choice. It also says he was the people's choice. It's almost like God was like, okay, let's find somebody that I can choose and you can choose. I'm not sure. But he did choose Saul. And um, in, even in that smallest sense, it was almost like God's heart for redeeming Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, from this bad like, um, reputation they had. You know, Even in choosing Saul to be the king over all of his people, it was like this redemptive moment. But if you remember at the beginning of the story, the whole part of the reason why the Israelites asked for a king was because they were coming under attack from this guy, Nahash. And guess what, what city he's threatening? That one at the top, Jabesh Gilead. Okay, so he's coming against this town and he's like, hey, I'm going to destroy you all unless you make a treaty with me. And they said, okay, we'll make a treaty with you. And he said, okay, I'll make a treaty with you, but the whole treaty is contingent on all the men of your town gouging out your right eye. Crazy, right? So this guy is wild. And, and he's like, and so I'm going to put all of Israel to shame by doing this. And so when, when Saul hears this report in 1 Samuel chapter um, 11, 6 through 7, this is what happens. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. So part of Paul's, Saul's pain point became a PowerPoint for him in this moment where he is able to take leadership and actually assume the role of king that the Lord gave him and walk in this identity and kind of redeem some of what had happened as a result of the things his tribe had done for this town, Jabesh Gilead, that had also suffered because of it. Um, he, I think a key here is that it says that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. There's something happening here when we enjoin with the spirit of God to assume our identity. There's something about receiving what he says about us and who we are and having the ability to walk in the way that he would have us to walk that comes through the spirit of the Lord. And so it's when the spirit of the Lord comes on him that he gets angry. And this is like his first act as king, by the way. He had gone back to Gibeah kind of in like like the quiet after he'd been anointed. He'd gone back and like nothing's really happening, but this is his first act as king. And so through the spirit of God, he receives kind of what the Lord's feeling, it sounds like. He gets angry. This should not happen. The people of God should not be put to shame by this guy and by their fear of him. And so he galvanizes the people. And do you see this connection? I don't see this elsewhere in the Bible, by the way. He cuts up the oxen. It's almost like, hey, have a flashback moment. Like, 
This should not happen among God's people. We should not be afraid. Okay? Um, so, if you remember what was in the people's heart when they asked for a king, it was that they wanted to look like other nations. And if you look at this story, the first story of Gibeah, where this terrible thing was happening in Israel, it's like, it's like that Levite galvanized people to say, this is not who we are. This is what other nations do. But what's going on in Gibeah, this is not who we are. We don't look like other nations in this way. God set us apart to look different. Also, when the people asked for a king, they were afraid. And then the second story where Saul galvanizes the people to action, it's fear that is ruling them. And it's like he's galvanized and he's saying, this is not who we are as a people of God. We are not to live in fear. And I think when they asked for a king, what would have happened if one person had stood up and said, this is not who we are. We're not going to reject our king, the Lord of hosts, who rules over us. This isn't who we are, to ask for a man. To ask for a man like no other among the people when we have a God who is like no other, period. Right? What would have happened if one person had stood up? Um, I was looking in Isaiah 59. You know, among the many times where God's people lose their way, this was one of the times where he talked about it. And he said this in verses 12 through 17. Our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and in his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. It's so powerful when it says the Lord looked and was displeased and there was no justice. He saw that there was no one and he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. There's been plenty of times throughout history where God's people have lost a sense of their identity, right? You can look through the 20th century and probably name a couple of people who are influential in the church to say, hey, this isn't who we are. Over in Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, during World War II, this isn't who we are. Martin Luther King Jr., don't accept what's going on, this isn't who we are. Jesus was like that too. 
In fact, Isaiah 59 is talking about Jesus in bringing truth, justice, salvation, passion, vengeance, all these things. But he's talking about his own people, by the way. Primarily, when Jesus gets angry, when you see it, and he's harsh with people, it's the religious crowd he's talking about. Because he said, I didn't come to condemn anybody, but I came to bring salvation. So primarily, that's also what I'm talking about. Um, where are the points in, in our churches where maybe we're saying, are we, are we really aligned with who we should be in God? Does, when the world sees us, do they see people who are trying to look like them? Do they see people who are afraid of them? Um, there's a thing where in the New Testament, the temple is being desecrated because people are selling things and cheating people of money and things like that in the temple of God. And when Jesus comes in, he's like, this is outrageous. And he starts turning tables over, right? He's totally galvanized by the evil that's happening in the church. And he's like, this can't stand. And there's kind of like the sense that maybe there's some apathy among the people or even people who feel powerless because the Pharisees and the ruling people of the religion crowd had so much power. Maybe there were a lot of people who knew it was wrong, but didn't have any power to do anything about it. But Jesus did. He didn't care. Um, but he was the only one. Then in, in this first Samuel account in the future, we might not talk about it, but when David raises up, you know, Goliath is making a mockery out of God's people. He's like this giant saying, come out and fight me. He's totally mocking them. And when David comes on the scene, he's outraged. He's like, hey, who's going to fight this guy? Somebody's got to fight this guy. We can't let him put our God to shame. Like, what is this identity crisis you all are having? We have a powerful God who will deliver us, right? One person, and he defeated Goliath, you know, in the, in the power of the Spirit, it was on him. But Jesus did this, and David did this, and they knew who they were, and they knew who God was. I think sometimes when Christians get mad about things that are messed up and wrong, if we're not closely attuned to God, we can get mad at the wrong thing or um, at the, like share our anger in a way that's harmful. We can forget about love. We can do things like totally messed up ways. But when you're like Jesus or when you're like David and you're so close to the word of God, because you see that in both of their lives, you're so close to the word of God that you know what he says about you. You know some of his purpose in your life. And you know exactly who he is. Because you've studied him. And you've studied the word. It's grounded in identity. This ability to even call out, even amongst ourselves, hey, this isn't who we are. You can only know who we are if you know who we serve. And who loves us? So the other day I was reading a news story. And I'm starting to think, like, maybe I need to exhibit a little bit more discernment in reading news. 
Because afterwards I was like, oh, I feel manipulated. <laughs> I feel manipulated. I feel like I really fell into a trap with that because what happened was um, the article was saying, you know, there's lots of people that can't get into the country legally. And so such a number of people from China are coming in through Mexico. And you know, all these other thoughts in my mind were, all these other thoughts from the news were on my mind, like, oh, these, these spy balloons or whatever it was that we shot down over the country and stuff. And my first feeling inside was fear, like, oh my goodness, is there gonna be a war? Like, is this, are these, are these like soldiers? Like, what's gonna happen? <laughs> And then, and then I've just felt like the immediate correction of the Lord, like, what are you thinking? This is not who you are. Because my first commandment is that you love me, and my second is that you love my neighbor, that you love your neighbor. Okay. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no qualifications about who your neighbor is, why they're there, or how they got there. You love them. And when I slipped into this fear mode, it was like a total forgetting of like who, who I am in the Lord and who he's calling me to be. And thankfully he brought me right out of it. Like, uh-uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't serve empire. You don't bow to the fears the empire is trying to push you to bow to. And so I'm just wondering if you guys are like me and you see these places where as a believer, you're like, in this context, how am I to look? In this context, how am I like Jesus where I share the truth? And at the same time, like nobody can accuse me of not being loving. How can I live in this day and age and not want to look like the world? And be totally okay with being totally different. And being okay with, God, with Jesus saying, the world's going to hate you. But also not be mistaken as somebody who's angry about the wrong things. There's a lot in here. I know I threw a lot at you guys and there was some weird stuff. But basically, I just wanted to say, like, it's from your identity that God is going to raise things up out of you to to live and move as his people. And it's when you um, keep him as your king, first and foremost, that you're able to hang on to that and not be deceived by the lies and the schemes of the enemy, right? So maybe God's saying to you, oh, if there's a musician, you could come up. So maybe God's saying to you, like, do you know who you are in me? Like, do you know me? Do you know that I know you and I love you? Maybe he's just going to talk to you about some of your basic identity in him if you don't know it yet, like how much he loves you. Maybe um, you're, you can relate to Saul and be like, yeah, I've got some family of origin wounds that like maybe God wants to heal in me. Maybe they're still affecting me. Maybe you can look around and see things that you're like, I'm not okay with this. Like, I see injustice. 
um, I think I need to shed the light of truth. Maybe um, God has taken you on a journey where he's delivered you from fear or delivered you from looking like the world and places that used to be pain points in your life. He now wants to make a PowerPoint in your life. I was listening to a podcast and there was this woman on there named Kathleen Cook. There's a slide for this one. She references T.D. Jakes and she says, what is it that you hate? T.D. Jakes says that your mission is your misery. So what is it that you hate? Because the talents God's given you is what he uses then to, to propel you to go fix it. I just thought that was so cool because it's like, that's so true. Sometimes it's the things that you're like, I can't stand that. It's like God is saying, hey, I put that in you. You should be a little bit upset about that. Get galvanized. Go out there and do something for me. You know who I am. You know who you are. I'm calling you to this. Maybe there's something in your mind that's popping up like that, where it's got God just saying like, hey, it's time to take action. You might be that one person that sees the flaw that nobody else sees. You might be that one person who sees where everyone else is kind of losing a sense of their identity or has grown apathetic. Mm -hmm.